Please turn with me in your Bibles to the Gospel according to Luke chapter 2. We will be looking at verses 1 through 7. And I'm going out on a limb here, but I, I would guess that many of you have heard this wonderful passage before. It is the long-awaited story of how, when we were helpless, lost, and rebellious, God himself came down. When he saw there was no one else to help, God himself brought salvation. And he became one of us, became human, began his long-promised work to rescue and save his people. It is the story of the birth of our Lord Jesus Christ. Now, if you were reading the book of Luke for the first time, I know it's hard to imagine this, but if you're reading through this for the first time, what you are about to hear would be shocking. Especially if you consider what has been said about Christ thus far. For this child who is going to be born, the angel Gabriel had said, will be great and will be called the Son of the Most High. And the Lord God will give to him the throne of his father David, and he will reign over the house of Jacob forever, and of his kingdom there will be no end. Many rejoiced at the birth of the forerunner, John the Baptist. What then would, she, would, she, what then would we expect for the birth of a king, for the birth of the king? Surely something much more impressive Listen again, as if you are hearing this for the first time. This is God's word. In those days, a decree went out from Caesar Augustus that all the world should be registered. This was the first registration when Quirinius was governor of Syria, and all went to be registered, each to his own town. And Joseph also went up from Galilee, from the town of Nazareth to Judea, to the city of David, which is called Bethlehem, because he was of the house and lineage of David, to be registered with Mary, his betrothed, who was with child. And while they were there, the time came for her to give birth. And she gave birth to her firstborn son and wrapped him in swaddling cloths and laid him in a manger, because there was no place for them in the inn. Let us pray. Lord God, we ask that you would help us to understand this passage, this coming of your Son, more deeply this morning. We pray that you would convict us, that you would give us faith, that you would build us up, that you would equip us for every good work. In Jesus' name, amen. Well, this is one of those rare occasions when the birth of Jesus is preached at a time other than Christmas. Usually at Christmas, we expect there to be a lot of people who never come to church or only come to church twice a year, once a year. And so it's pretty common, and I think it's appropriate that the sermon becomes more evangelistic, and more simple. 
so today, I'm going to try to go a little bit deeper uh, as we consider the passage this time in the context of going through the book of Luke. And there are four main things that are laid out for us in this passage, and consequently, four things that I will be focusing on today. First, the time of Jesus' birth, the place, or secondly, the occasion of Jesus' birth, thirdly, the place of Jesus' birth, and finally, the condition in which Jesus was born. The time, the occasion, the place, and the condition. And you can see here that the time is when Caesar Augustus ruled. The occasion is the census, the first census in the time of Quirinius, the governor of Syria. The place was the little town of Bethlehem. And the condition was very lowly, very humble. So first, the time. We heard it this morning already, Galatians 4.4. 4. Paul wrote, Now, in the fullness of time, God sent forth his Son, born of a woman, born under the law, that he might redeem those who were under the law. The time was the fullness of time. There are many different ways in which Jesus is born in the fullness of time. There's the fulfillment of Scripture. There is the preparation of the world. There is the birth of the forerunner. But I will go into a few of those details a little bit later. One of those ways in which it was the fullness of time was that John the Baptist had already been born. It would make sense that the forerunner to the Messiah who was sent out to prepare the way for Jesus would be born first. And it is now six months since John the Baptist was born in the hill country of Judea. And for Mary, these six months must have been pretty busy. She's preparing for a new family. Uh, she has got a now pretty difficult to imagine future with Joseph. She's got much pondering of the things that she and Joseph heard from the angel. No doubt, much prayer and much looking to Scripture for anything that would help them to understand what they must know to raise the Messiah. Can you imagine the pressure? I can't. Especially for someone as young as Mary. I suspect that these six months were also difficult months besides being busy. Now, She's no longer, Mary is no longer living in that security of Elizabeth's home. Someone who understands what she's going through. Someone who believes what Mary has said. Mary is now showing. She is now exposed to the questioning eyes of her neighbors. Likely also subject to ridicule and gossip. Perhaps in some ways, the trip to Bethlehem, although seemingly coming at a bad time for Mary, would have been a welcome one, though strenuous. Now the time had come for Mary to give birth, but Luke times this for us not in relationship to the birth of John, but to the decree of the most powerful man on earth. 
Caesar Augustus. In those days, a decree went out from Caesar Augustus that all the world should be registered. This was the first registration when Quirinius was governor of Syria, and all went to be registered, each to his own town. Note how Luke speaks of this. Augustus commands, and the whole world obeys. The whole world is under his dominion. That is, the whole Roman world, which was huge. There are not many people in the history of Western civilization who have left a greater impact than Caesar Augustus, originally called Octavian. He was born in 63 B.C. He was the grand-nephew of Julius Caesar. That is, Julius Caesar's sister was Augustus's grandmother. Um, and toward the end of Julius Caesar's reign, he's, Julius Caesar secretly adopted uh, Augustus, his, his favorite nephew, to be his son and his heir. Our month of July is named after Julius Caesar. Our month of August is named after Caesar Augustus. So these guys were pretty influential. They left a big impact. After Julius Caesar was assassinated, after he had rose, risen to power through civil wars, Octavian himself started to rise to rule himself, finally defeating Antony and Cleopatra at the Battle of Actium in 31 BC. Soon after this, Caesar uh, Augustus was declared the emperor of Rome, the first emperor of Rome. And from then on, his rule was rather peaceful. The civil wars had ended, and he controlled a vast domain. The, under his rule, Rome had reached its greatest height. It was said that he ruled the world. There is a, a, a carving at Heliconarsis that's called Augustus the savior of the world. In other places, he's called Deus uh, at a dominus at Deus, he is Lord and God. He is Lord and God and Savior. He was exalted. There were, there were uh, temples set up to worship him in Israel. And so he was a man of great power. His empire stretched from Britain to Turkey and the entire north coast of Africa. They completely surrounded the Mediterranean. And all of that power was consolidated in Rome. Augustus was a great builder, and he consolidated his kingdom. He built roads everywhere so that we still say all roads lead to Rome. We still call paying your taxes, rendering under Caesar what is Caesar's. Uh, so under his rule, Israel and everyone in the New Testament was lived. Jesus never left the Roman Empire in his earthly life. The Apostle Paul, with all his missionary journeys, all his traveling, he never left the Roman Empire. They were all under the shadow of the Caesars. So what was the time of Jesus' birth? It was six months after the birth of John. It was during the reign of Augustus Caesar. It was the fullness of of time. This 
rule of Augustus Caesar had more and more taken over life in Israel. Under the Roman general Pompey, Judea was claimed about 60 years also before Jesus' birth, around the same time that Augustus was born. And from then on, they didn't have any rule of their own. They had a king, but he was a vassal king. He was a, a paid tribute to Rome. Herod the Great, an incredibly wicked man himself, it is said of Herod that he stole to the crown, he stole to the throne like a fox, he ruled like a tiger, and he died like a dog. He was ruthless. And Augustus said of him that it was better to be Herod's swine than his son because at least his swine wouldn't be killed. He killed his sons. He had ten wives at the same time, or ten wives, nine of them at the same time, and was just distrusting of everyone. This is the life, the situation, the governmental situation into which the Son of God was born. Rule by an Idumean king who was ruthless, who once he hears of Jesus' birth, he slaughters all the baby boys of Bethlehem. And then under that, the dominion of an emperor, incredibly powerful, in far-off Rome. This time of Jesus' birth seems to be a time of great weakness, a time of danger and suffering, but it was also the fullness of time. It was all under God's sovereign control. None of this had gone without God's notice. Genesis 49.10, Jacob had promised, the scepter shall not depart from Judah nor the ruler's staff from between his feet until Shiloh comes, and to him shall be the obedience of the peoples. Now, since 60 B.C., Judah has had their scepter depart. It is now ripe for the coming of the Lord, the great king. So, in fulfillment of Scripture, the scepter had recently departed. Also, uh, in preparation for the gospel, Alexander the Great had come and swept over the world, conquering it, spreading the Greek language everywhere so that the New Testament would be written in Greek and people could read it anywhere they went. Also, the Roman Empire had stretched out in this great way that Paul could travel freely from place to place under the protection of the Roman Empire. <clears throat> These roads that, that Augustus built were also the roads on which the missionaries traveled. You can imagine how difficult it would be for the gospel to spread if it was broken up into many kingdoms who were at war with each other, all speaking different languages. In this way, God was, was raising up this Roman kingdom for the gospel to spread. It's similar to China, as you might know, that in my lifetime, China has gone from about having 5 million Christians to more than 100 million Christians. And Mao Zedong, although he was a terrible person and an atheist, he paved the way for the gospel. He was God's unpaid servant. He united China, and <clears throat> they have many languages themselves, and he, he sp spread the, the dialect of Beijing, Mandarin, everywhere. 
He simplified the, the language so that more and more people could read it. And, and then in, under his rule, under his oppression of Christianity, it exploded. So God has a way of ruling over the most powerful people, overruling them for his own good. The time was also uh, a, a time of Augustus Caesar's first census in the time of Quirinius uh, for everyone to go back to their hometown. This was almost certainly a census being taken for the purpose of taxes because Jews were exempt from military service. So this was also in fulfillment of Scripture. You know that Scripture teaches that the Messiah was to be born in Bethlehem. It looks on the surface that Caesar is controlling the world, that Caesar is telling everybody where to go, when in reality, Caesar's decree is carrying out God's decree prophesied 700 years earlier that the Messiah would be born in Bethlehem. It seems like Jesus is powerless. It seems like Augustus has all the power. Actually, Jesus has all the power. Caesar is carrying out unknowingly God's will. That should be a comfort to all of us. We live in an age like, like pretty much everybody else has lived in with bad rulers. They are still a blessing that God has given us, placed over us. And they are especially a blessing because God overrules them for your good. All things work together for your good, to those who love God and are called according to his purpose. So we need not fear when we have wicked leaders who exalt themselves as God, who wicked leaders who are trying to kill off all the babies, you know, in, in an effort to protect their own power. God rules over them all. Jesus Christ has been given all authority in heaven and on earth, and he loves you. And so, just as in the time of Rome, we see God is still carrying out his purposes. All things, Ephesians 1 tells us, are according to his, working according to the counsel of his will. All our times are in his hand. Proverbs says that the, the king's heart is like channels of water in the hand of the Lord, and he turns it wherever he wishes. That is our great God. He has no rivals to his power. Even Satan has to ask permission to do something. Your, our God reigns, and that is good news, despite the powerless position in which his people often look like they are placed. That is the time, a time of oppression, but a time ripe for the gospel to go out, a time of the fulfillment of Scripture, fullness of time. The occasion, as I mentioned, was... Uh, a census for taxes. It says this is the first census, the first registration when Quirinius was governor of Syria. That's because there will be about 10 years later another census that's mentioned in Acts chapter 5, I think verse 17, where Gamaliel speaking there mentions it, that there was a census and there was a man from Galilee who caused a, a revolt because of this census. So censuses weren't this 
simple thing of just counting people. It had the, the feeling of being oppressed, of paying taxes now to, to Rome. And it, it resulted in people revolting in Galilee, you know, rebelling at the idea of having to pay taxes to Rome, having to be a, a, just a foreign, just a piece of this mighty empire of Rome, to feel powerless. But Joseph and Mary, we see here, were obedient, even though it was very inconvenient, a very inconvenient time. They submitted to the taxes. We don't see them rebelling like at the next uh, census. They travel down to Bethlehem in, in obedience to Rome so that they might be registered along with God's, you know, with, with everyone else uh, for, the, for the taxes. Isn't amazing to think of, really? Jesus would be accused at the end of his life of not paying taxes to Rome and so on. He's, this is the one who would say, render unto Caesar the things that are Caesar's. Even now, his parents are doing it. They are in obedience to the authorities that God has placed over them, that God has placed over his son. As he said to Pilate, no authority would be given to you over me unless it had been given to you from heaven. But it had been, placed, had been given. Jesus had been placed under the law. He was born of a woman, born under the law. And it was in keeping the law that God's promises were being fulfilled. So we see the occasion. We see the time. This occasion leads them to the birthplace of Jesus, to Bethlehem. This is the place. It would have been about a four-day journey for Mary, no matter what route she took. Generally, the fastest route would have been to go straight through Samaria. It would have been about 80 miles of a trip, which you ladies who have you know, been pregnant before, you can imagine, say, in the last week of your pregnancy, how would you like to go uphill 80 miles you know, for, for days? I mean, we don't, we don't walk 80 miles, period, today. Mary had to go down this way. More likely, if they went the route that the Jews normally went to avoid Samaria, they would go cross over the Jordan, come down the eastern side of the Jordan, cross back over near Jericho and up through Bethany, and then they would come to the lovely little village of Bethlehem, which was also in the shadow of a great castle built by Herod the Great, the one who would slaughter those baby boys, very soon. This was the shadow in which Jesus was born. It was a place that was lowly outwardly, but it was also a place of great history. As they approached Bethlehem, they would have gone right through fields that Ruth and Boaz had walked years earlier. They would have gone through the same places where David had played his harp, where David had shepherded his flock of sheep. It was the town of David, and David's name is mentioned twice in our passage. So there's a big emphasis on 
Jesus being from David's line. So Jesus being born in Bethlehem shows us, one, that he was of David's line. He was born in David's town because he was of, Joseph was of the house and the lineage of David. And it mentions Jesus is also the firstborn son. There Mary gave birth to her firstborn son. It doesn't say her only son. It says her firstborn son. And this probably has uh, some references to Jesus Christ as being the firstborn of all creation, as Paul would write, some glorious titles. It's kind of a special word in Scripture. But firstborn also means the son who, gets, who has the rights, the firstborn rights, that Jesus has the rights to the crown. Jesus has the rights that were passed down from David's line to him. And so it was, a, it was a town of obscurity, lowliness. It was a town that was oppressed. Um, and it was yet a town of promise. Bethlehem wasn't Rome. It wasn't Jerusalem. It wasn't even Nazareth for that matter. But it was there in that little town that the Son of God was born. And this was according to prophecy. You remember in Matthew... The wise men came from the east. They came bearing gifts because they wanted to go see him who had been born king of the Jews, and they were coming to worship him. And they went, naturally, to Jerusalem. And there Herod found out that these men were there and that they were going to offer gifts. And so he was very troubled, and he spoke to his scholars about it. Where is the Messiah to be born? And the scholars looked at Scripture and they answered this way, in Bethlehem of Judea, for so it was written by the prophet, that is, the prophet Micah, I mean, yeah, Micah 700 years earlier, but for you, O Bethlehem Ephaphtah, who are too little to be among the clans of Judah, from you shall come forth for me one who was to be ruler in Israel, whose coming forth is from old, from ancient days. This wasn't just a puzzle that biblical scholars could answer. This was something that regular people knew too. We know this because in John chapter 7, when people were seeing what Jesus was doing, they were hearing his words, they were arguing with themselves, who is this man? Is this the prophet that Moses spoke about in Deuteronomy? Some people said he was the prophet. Others said, this is the Christ. But some said, well, is the Christ supposed to come from Galilee? Has not the Scripture said that the Christ comes from the offspring of David and comes from Bethlehem, the village where David was? So not just the scholars, the people knew that the, the Messiah was to be born in Bethlehem. They were absolutely right about that, but they just didn't realize that Jesus actually was born in Bethlehem, actually was of the line of David. He checks off all the boxes but the point is that I'm making here is that it was clear and it was known that Christ was to be born in Bethlehem. And I suspect Joseph knew it too. He probably put in at least a little thought about what he was supposed to do about raising the Messiah. And I think it's telling because after he goes to Egypt and he's going to come back in Matthew, you find out he was intending on coming back to Judea, not to Bethlehem. It seems as if they were moving from Bethlehem 
and not just going down for the census. That he knew somehow Jesus should be raised in Bethlehem or in Jerusalem or something. But God warned him in a dream not to return back that way, and they went back to Bethlehem. So Joseph seemed to have probably some sense of this. But this is all what God had said to Micah through Micah 700 years ago, that the Messiah was to be born in the little town of Bethlehem. And so he was. In our passage, Jesus, the son of David, was born in the city of David. And all this looks on the surface like a great coincidence. On the one hand, Jesus is powerless. His parents are powerless. Here at a moment when Mary is in no condition to travel, they are moved from likely ridicule among neighbors in Nazareth to danger from the wicked king Herod in Bethlehem, all for the purpose of being taxed by the emperor in Rome. Outwardly, they are oppressed, powerless, homeless, poor, needy, no doubt exhausted. And yet, it was God's decree that was controlling all of this. The timing of it, the place of it, all shows God's sovereign power over the whole situation. God, God's people sometimes seem to have no power. In, like, in, all, in reality, God has all the power. Isaiah said, Behold your God, behold the nations are like a drop from a bucket and are accounted as dust on the scales. All the nations are as nothing before him. They are accounted by him as less than nothing and meaningless. It is he who brings princes to nothing and makes the ruler of the earth as emptiness. Is it a comfort, brothers and sisters, that there is no ruler on earth who is outside your father's sovereign control? The greatness that Caesar Augustus had, that I spent so much time elaborating on this morning, was just dust on the scales. It's nothing. The baby born in Bethlehem, so small, so helpless, is the real ruler. He is the mighty God, and nothing on earth could stop him. The picture that Daniel presented years earlier of a statue that was on the top it was gold and the shoulders were silver and the, the torso was, was bronze and then the legs were iron and, and clay. And then a rock comes, made not with human hands, carved out of the mountain, would roll down and absolutely annihilate all those kingdoms. And they would be scattered like dust. And then the stone would grow, grow to a mountain that would, that would fill the earth. That's Jesus coming to destroy the kingdoms of men. And there was no stopping it. And amazingly, it wasn't that humanity was being wiped out because Jesus became a man. He came not to destroy men, we read earlier in John chapter 3, but that we might be saved through him. And that's the amazing thing about it. His kingdom The kingdom of this world is become the kingdom of our Lord and of his Christ. That's what's happening here. And all the power of Rome and all the power of all the kingdoms of the world, no one could stop it as helpless as he looks. This baby is the mighty God. I want you to consider lastly, in light 
of this great power. The juxtaposition that we have here of this sovereignty and now his lowly condition in which he was born. They arrive likely at night and they can find no room in the inn, even though it must be obvious that Mary desperately needs a place right now. No one volunteers. No one makes room. There's nothing in the text to indicate that there was a cruel innkeeper who was just like to see pregnant women have to give birth out in the, in the open air. There was just no room. But wouldn't you expect that somebody would stand up and say, this woman can have my room? There was, somebody would sacrifice for this young, needy mother. So the reality was that when the Son of God came, he spent his first night in essentially a barn, that he was rejected by men. He came to his own, his own house, his own family, as it were, his own town, and his own did not receive him. According to early church testimony, Justin Martyr, who wrote about 150 A.D., Jesus was born in a nearby cave and laid in the ground. That's, that's possibly true, likely true, uh, that this is where, it was a place nevertheless where, where animals were kept because there was a place for animals to be fed. That's where Jesus would be laid. Probably not a little nice wooden crib that you see, but just a ditch, just laid in the ground with maybe some hay. It was a place that was so exposed to the elements that the shepherds would be able to find him that night in the darkness. So they're probably not knocking on doors to find him. They see him because he's out there, practically outside, being born. This is a lowly condition for the, the king of kings to be born. What, we would be appalled if any of our children had to be born in this way. But this is the way that the Son of God came into the world. Why? It's the same reason why he was lowly throughout his whole life. He was made lowly for you, dear brothers and sisters. 2 Corinthians tells us, For you know the grace of our Lord Jesus Christ, that though he was rich, yet for your sake he became poor, so that you by his poverty might be made rich. John Calvin said, When he was thrown into a stable and placed in a manger, and a lodging refused him among men, it was that heaven might be opened to us not as a temporary lodging, but as our eternal country and inheritance, and that angels might receive us into their abode. The king of kings was made poor so that you by his poverty might be made rich. He was made homeless so that you would have a kingdom that could never be shaken. He was made sin for you that you could be the righteousness of God in him. It is the great exchange. It is the gospel. He became lowly to save the lowly, to save us, to lift us up that we might have heaven opened all for your sake. 
all for his glory. J.C. Ryle said, Had he come to save with royal majesty, surrounded by his father's angels, it would have been an act of undeserved mercy. Had he chosen to dwell in a palace with power and great authority, we would have reason enough to wonder. But to become poor as the very poorest of mankind and lowly as the lowest of mankind, that is a love that passes knowledge. It is unspeakable, unsearchable. Never let us forget that through this humiliation, Jesus has purchased for us a title to glory. Brothers and sisters, consider how the Lord has reached out, made himself under the law, made himself weak, made small, made lowly for you. It is the wonder of wonders. And I ask you, should you not love such a Savior? Should we not imitate such a Savior with our service to others? Should we not be made willing to be lowly, to give up our rights that we might serve others? And should we not make room for Him, for such a Savior, and not push Him off to just Sunday mornings or to one area of your life? But should you not submit to Him as King of all of your life, you will find no other ruler that is so pleasant to be serving, including yourself. For God so loved the world that he gave his only son. Will you give him your heart? Let us pray. Lord, we ask that you would open up our hearts, that Jesus would always find room in our lives and no place where he is not king, where we do not submit to him. Help us, Lord, to be loving like you are, to be willing to be made lowly, that we might serve as you served. In Jesus' name we pray, amen.